Sam's sermon last week. I, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was, it was really good, very um, kind of prevalent and um, applicable for moving into the new year. One line he said that I want to kind of jump off of to start our time is he said, it's kind of ironic in the church that we, we borrow so much from our culture in this New Year's resolution thing, right? So for, for the month of December leading up to Christmas, we talk about how um, humanity needed a savior. Humanity needed someone outside of themselves to come and rescue us. This was Jesus, right? And all our focus is on Jesus and not on us because he's the savior and we can't save ourselves and all that. And then we often shift right after Christmas to, okay, how can I make myself better this year, right? Like how, now it's up to me. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to get excited about all these things. And the danger there is that we forget about God. We forget about the gospel. Now, I, New Year's resolutions are fine. Like I, I, I reflect and and, and, and make resolutions occasionally. And I think, I think doing, uh, reflecting on where you at, are at in life and intentionally thinking of ways you can change or mature in areas is always a good thing. And I think it happens to be kind of convenient to do that at the beginning of the year. There's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. But the, the question really becomes is where is God in your New Year's resolutions? Or as you think of 2020, like, how does God fit into that story? Like, are you, are you kind of setting God aside and then saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all these things in hopes that I improve in this area or I drop a little weight or whatever it is, right? Like, like are, we, are we thinking about God when we think about our year and as we make plans? If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, one thing I would challenge you with this morning, and, and you're, maybe you're just you're new to church, and I would, I would ask you the question— um, let's just say in 2020, everything gets accomplished you want to accomplish. Like all the things, as you look ahead to the year, the year goes exactly the way you want it to go. Will you have 100% contentment? Will you feel everything you long to feel and not ever feel like you need a New Year's resolution again in 2021? Like, no, like we all get that we can put a lot of stock and trust in these New Year's resolutions, but ultimately those things are not going to give us what we ultimately desire. And we believe here in a, a Christian church that, that God had to come down to earth to save us. Like we couldn't save ourselves. We, we couldn't clean ourselves up. God had to initiate coming to earth. And so I would, I would kind of put that before you this morning to say, what does God have to do with your 2020? And will you think about him? Will you, will you um, consider the claims of the scriptures? Will you think about Jesus more in 2020 maybe than you did in 2019? Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who would call ourselves Christians, especially in, in Providence Road, we believe in a big, sovereign God who's providentially over everything, right? He's involved in every aspect of creation. Like we can't get away from his presence. He's involved in everything. And we, we, we know we need him to show up for our salvation, even to bear the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5 there says the, the list of fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of those, it, those are fruits of the spirit. Meaning that we can't truly have joy without his spirit. We can't truly have peace be kind, be gentle, have self-control without his spirit. So we believe in a big God who's sovereign, who's over all. You have verses like John 15, 5, which will be on the screen. 
Jesus says this, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And here's the, here's the line here. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? So that's, that's, a, that's a, 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 a bold statement by Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now what, what he's talking about there is, is things that are spiritual that honor and glorify God. Like you can't do those things apart from the Spirit. Then you have Matthew 16, 18. Jesus speaking about the church. He says, I tell you, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here again, this is God saying, I'm going to build my church. So, that, so, so why do we do what we do here? Like, wh- why do we need leaders in the church? Why do we need people to serve in the church? If God's going to build his church, what is our responsibility? I think that's an honest question that we've probably all wrestled with and asked. Like you have these passages about God's sovereignty and his bigness and his providence. But then you also have verses that God is asking us to come to him in prayer. Matthew 6, 10, this is part of the Lord's Prayer. There's a line in there that says, pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is telling us we should pray that God would, would make earth like heaven or that his kingdom would come to a greater degree in our world. You have John 14, 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's bold, right? God, Jesus is saying, hey, this is how you should ask. This is what you should feel when you pray, when you ask God for something. Mark 11, 23, 22 and 23. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Again, bold, right? Like this is the kind of faith, the kind of belief that Jesus is asking us to come to the Father with, to believe that God would move. So we feel this tension here that God is sovereign, he's active, he's providentially working in our world, but yet we have these passages where Jesus is saying, pray. God is saying in his word, pray. Ask big prayers. Be bold when you pray. Ask for big things. And so as we move into a new year, I kind of want to challenge us as a church to begin asking big prayers. Like raise the, the, the boldness measure of our prayers. And, and really, do you want God to, to change things about you? Do you want to look more like Jesus in 2020? Do you want our church at, collectively to look more like Jesus in 2020? Do you want Norman and the surrounding areas to be changed as a result from our church and other churches in this community? And hopefully all, the answer to all those questions are yes. Yes, we want that, and, but from the scripture we're, uh, we've read, clearly God wants something from us, and he wants us to ask and ask boldly. I think if we were all being honest, if, if, if we wanted to, we would all want to see this, this idea of revival and awakening happen in our own hearts, in our own lives, and in the city around us. Sometimes we get weirded out a little bit, maybe, when we hear the words revival and awakening, because maybe those words have been abuse and misuse, but those, we see that in the scriptures. We see that in church history. And so hopefully we are longing to see God move in um, extraordinary ways in 2020. And that's my hope. And that's my prayer. Even for uh, in my life personally, in the last couple of months, that's been my prayer that I want to see 
God moved to a greater degree in my own life and to, to God to move to a greater degree in our church's life. And I've also been looking at history a little bit more on, and, and looking at some revivals and things that happened throughout church history. And you look at theologians and historians as they study these revivals and ask, how did God move in such a mighty way? And how did so many people come to know Jesus? And how did whole cities and countries get changed as a result of this miraculous move of God? Like, how did that happen? And, and there's a tension here, right? Because it's not a formula. And some people have kind of abused that by saying, hey, if we just do these three things, we're going to bring revival in this place. And that's, that's wrong. That's not biblical. Like we can't control and God's not a genie that we can rub and say, hey, come here now and revive us. That's not, that's not what happens. But the other side of that tension is, is should we ask for revival? Should we ask for God to create awakening in us and in our city? And I think the answer is yes. We do that humbly. We, we, these prayers that we've seen God tell us to ask, we say, yes, God, I believe you can do that. I want you to do that. And histor- historians and theologians, as they've studied these, these moves of God throughout history, they were always trying to say, well, well, what was present there? Like, how can we at least, if we can't control God, maybe we can create an environment where God will move in those kinds of ways. And we can feel his presence more tangibly. And there are, usually as you talk to different, or read and, and listen to different ones, there's, there's five to seven things that are usually present in revivals or awakenings. But by far and away, the number one thing that they, every, all of historians, theologians will put at the top of the list is extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer. Like however you want to say, like, just, just prayer, a unique season where people were, were pleading with God to move. And that didn't happen initially. Some, some, some revivals, it took 100 years. There's revivals where 100, people were praying for 100 years that God's spirit would come and move. And it took 100 years for God to move. Now, if you pray those kinds of prayers, is it guaranteed that God will move? No, that's not the point. But if you look at these revivals and things that have happened throughout history, um, it's all started usually with a small group of people praying big, bold prayers, asking the spirit of God to move. So this is kind of this tension we wrestle with between God's sovereignty and our prayer. Okay. And so this is a, um, this is something that I think we're called to do. So as we step into the new year, I want us to be a people of prayer. And, and I'll call to, to narrow this down a little bit. We've preached on prayer, taught on prayer uh, uh, quite a bit here, but we've never really, really zeroed in on this idea of intercessory prayer. And even a subset of this, I think is what we could call contending prayer. That we're contending with God and asking him to move in extraordinary ways. And that's what I, I really want from us moving in from 2020, us as, us as individuals and us as a church. So this morning, for the rest of our time, we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament. And I think in this story, you're going to see a king, and he, he goes through this process as revival is brought to this time period um, amongst um, God's people in, the, in, the, in, in Judah, right, in the nation of Judah. And we're going to see um, some, some clear things that I think uh, Josiah, this king, is going to do. And I think we can learn from this. And I don't think that this is a clear um, step-by-step process necessarily, but I do think it's something we can look at and work our way through as we're trying to grow in praying these contending prayers. Because I, I know for me, this is, um, I usually am, I'm, I'm reactive in my prayer. Like if I'm sick or somebody needs prayer or I'm feeling something, I, I can pray. 
but to be proactive and asking God to move in mighty ways, um, that, that feels a little bit uncomfortable for me. So I, it helps for me to have some, a process to work through here. So I'm going to walk through. There's, there's five kind of stages here that I'll walk through as we read this story. And it's going to be in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 34. Chronicles, right? Like we all, that book we all turn to immediately to start our New Year's reading plans. Uh, but the, the, the scriptures will be on the screen to my left and to my right. If you want to follow along, um, it's about a third of the way into the Bible. Um, I, I looked at the Pew Bible to remember the page. I think it was like 209 or 210. I looked at that this morning. So if you're following along in the Pew Bible, I think it's around 209 or 210, um, but it's about a third of the way through the book if you want to read with me. And we're going to read a lot of this chapter, but I'm going to stop along the way and kind of point out what I'm seeing from Josiah here. So this is King Josiah. He, is, he's, he takes over uh, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of God's people, when he's eight years old. And it is an absolute mess. This is a train wreck of a nation right now, and God is going to judge them. And he's already told them that through the prophets. They're rebelling. They're not seeking him. The previous king was, was not a good king. And then Josiah now is put um, in as king at eight years old. And this is where we start. We're going to read the first three verses. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, so now he's 16, while he was still yet a boy, he began to seek the the God of David, his father. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. So once he gets to be about 16, and really from the time up to he was about 20, he begins to walk with the Lord. He begins to seek the Lord. He becomes a godly, uh, really a godly young man leading this nation. And the first thing he does as he begins to walk with the Lord is he begins to wipe out all of the physical representations of idol worship. He had these temples, these places where the Israelites were always tempted to go to, to, to get their worth and their value and their peace and their joy from the surrounding culture and the surrounding gods. And so they would go to these places and they would worship and they would make sacrifices. So the first thing that Josiah did when he began to walk with the Lord is he got rid of those things. He physically tore those things down, it says. And this is really the first, I think, step in the process of this idea of contending prayer. You can see that Josiah um, has like this clarity of, of his discontentment and the discontentment of the Israelites, the, the, the God's people, right? So you have this individual reality and kind of the corporate reality here. So Isaiah, I mean, uh, Josiah feels like, okay, things aren't right. This is not okay. We're not walking with God. And so it's not just this discontentment because that's, that's what sin is, right? Like when we get discontent from the things of God, we go chase that in other places. That's called sin. So it's not just being discontent, but um, Josiah was aware and he had clarity in why he was discontent and why the, the people of Israel were so discontent. It's like the status quo had to change. You see the prophets throughout the Old Testament, they basically, the tone is enough is enough. Cut it out. This, is, this, this has to stop. So it's this, you, you, you kind of get fed up with the status quo. And, and to kind of put it, put it um, drive it home for us, this could be, I am tired of struggling with the same sin. I'm tired of it. 
I, I, I want it to end, and God, I'm going to come to you because I'm desperate for help. I need your presence to help me overcome this sin. Or my relationships are home or a mess. They're not where they need to be. I, God, I need your help. I need your spirit to come. I'm ready to humbly walk in your ways so that my relationships will change at home. You know, the way my attitude at work, it's, it's, it's bad. God, I, I need a new attitude at work. God, help me. It's this, again, contending prayer. It's this intercessory prayer. We're asking God, come and move tangibly. God, I, like, I need a miracle here. I need some power. Please come and move. And you see this behind Josiah cleaning house here. So that's number one, clarity behind the, the discontentment that we all have, I think, in our life. And really, as a church as well, if we feel that we're discontent and in places as a church, we can also contend for the sake of the church and even for the city, the city and what the city loves and what the city worships. Let's move on. Second Chronicles, continue on to verse 14. We'll skip down to 14. So he, he not only clear, cleans house of all the old idols and gods and temples, but he also begins to rebuild the temple of God, right? The house of the Lord, this passage refers to it as. So he begins uh, to, 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 to kind of send some, some people to start to rebuild and clean up the house of the Lord because you could imagine that it was being neglected. Um, it was probably not being taken care of while all this other idolatry was happening. Then you have verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given, given through Moses. So this is their scriptures. The first five books of the Old Testament. This is the, the, the people of God in this time. This is their holy scriptures. This is how God spoke to them. Then it says in 15, Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king, Josiah, and further reported to the king. He says this, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. So we have to think about this. Josiah is probably 20 years old. This is probably the first time he's ever heard God's word read aloud to him, right? Like if the, if the country's been in ruin and, and it took them, like they were cleaning out and they found the book, right? So the, the public reading of God's word was not happening in this time. So imagine Josiah hearing this from the first time. In verse 19, it says, and when the king heard the words of the law, um, so he's hearing it, right? So you can imagine um, Shaphan reading this to him, reading this. Um, and so here's the second part, right? The second part of kind of the second step here is that you grab onto God's promises in his word. So you're feeling the sense of discontentment and then you, you, you understand and you grab onto the promises found in his word and in the gospel. So this is where our spending time in the word comes into this, knowing the character and nature of God. We continually have to do that and have to have this diet of God's word. So when we are discontent, it's not just a negative thing. It's like, woe is me and I'm discontent and I, and I want things to change. But we actually run to something. We run to God's word and the promises in God's word. Maybe it's the promise that, that one day um, we're going to have an inheritance and we have hope stored up for us in heaven. Maybe that's the promise we need to hear. Maybe the promise is that like our struggles um, help us, uh, and, and we, as we persevere through struggles, it helps us in our character and grow. So maybe that's the promise we need to grab onto. So whatever the promise we need to grab onto happens through his word. Okay, so as you can imagine, Josiah the king hearing this, 
he's hearing this. And then the very next statement there in verse 19, he tore his clothes. This is one of those drastic pictures in the Old Testament where people are, they're repenting. Right? He's so undone, he's discontent, God's word meets him, and then he starts to reflect. He's undone. He repents. He realizes who he is before God, and really for his people as well. Remember, he's the king, so he's probably lamenting and, 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 and being sad about how, how, where Israel is at right now. Questions of repentance come up. Who, who do I think God is? I'm discontent. I see the word. It's, it's right in front of my face. God's revealing himself to me as I'm spending time in his word, as I'm hearing the word. Now, who do I think he is? What am I chasing after for freedom and joy? Where are my ambitions aimed? Is it aimed for God's kingdom or is it aimed for my kingdom? Right? And so this is part of repentance. We see this in Isaiah 6, in this kind of famous passage where the prophet Isaiah has this vision of the throne room. And, and he sees God there, and, and, and the, the, the angel touches his lips with the, with the burning coal, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Like he's undone because he's, he's, he's heard the word of God, and Isaiah there saw God in that vision, um, but here Josiah is hearing the words of God. So those first three steps, being discontent, grabbing onto the promises of God, and that personal examination, that kind of sounds like the Christian life, right? Like this should be a normal rhythm of our discipleship, right? We, we're aware of our discontent. We run to God and his word for help. We grab onto a promise, something that we can count on. And then that kind of reveals where we're currently at. And we repent. We say, God, I, I, want, I, I need you. Help me. I pray your spirit would help me overcome this. Give me joy. Give me freedom. Allow me to talk to that difficult person. Allow me to, to set aside my preferences uh, for the sake of my family. Whatever it is, this is the part of every disciple. Now, but this is, I think, usually where we stop, and maybe this doesn't drive us into that contending intercessory kind of prayer. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. And the king commanded Hilkiah. So he's heard the word of the law. He's repented. And he commanded Hilkiah, the priest, and Ikem, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, so all of his kind of inner circle, Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king, servant, saying, okay, all of you guys, go inquire of the Lord for me. Basically, go pray. Like, go talk to the prophetess here. They're going to go talk to a prophetess. And he's saying, go, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah and in, in the nation concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So he hears it, he repents, and then he's moved to action. He's like, okay, this has got to stop. Here's what we're going to do. Hey, uh, uh, the inner circle, I want you to go to this prophetess and the one who hears directly from the Lord and figure out this situation because we're not in a good place as a country. I'm hearing the word of the Lord. I am convicted and things need to change. So you go search, talk to the prophet and come back and report back to me. Okay, so here is the fourth step. And this is, this is action, right? Like Josiah's contending with God. He's saying, go pray, go seek the Lord, go seek the prophetess, which in that time was the way they communicated with God. So does our repentance drive us to contend in prayer and ask the Spirit of God to come help us overcome whatever we're repenting of, right? Some, oftentimes I think we repent and we realize we need to change and then we kind of pull our bootstraps back up and say, okay, now I'm going to go work really, really hard to make myself change. And then a few, a few you know, weeks or months later, we find ourselves back at step one being discontent again. 
But I wonder if at step three there, we would say, Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, fill me and allow me to overcome what um, is, is, is plaguing me right now. So let's keep reading. So Josiah starts to contend for God to move. And we're going to see this kind of pattern over and over again. Uh, verse 23, and she te- said to them, so this is the prophet is telling his inner circle, kind of reporting to them. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is God speaking to her. Tell the man who sent you to me. So it's Josiah. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book of, that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Like, ouch. Like, if you stop there, it's like, okay. Like, God's not going to relent. God was planning on pouring out his wrath on, on his people because of all the idolatry, because them turning their back on him, not following his ways. And she basically says, this is, this is what God's going to do. Verse 26, there's some good news though. But to the king of Judah, this is Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. We keep going. Behold, I will gather you to, this is what God's going to do. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Okay, so we see here that, okay, this is, this is God saying, okay, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna destroy you for now. Only because of Josiah. Josiah, you've been honorable. You sought me. You're trying to establish righteousness back in the kingdom. You're seeking me. You're contending. God hears Josiah's prayer. And he says, I'm gonna wait. I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge Judah yet. I'm gonna wait till you're dead. You're gone. You're gonna get to enjoy peace while you're still alive. And then my judgment will come. That's what God is saying through the prophet here. Then verse 29, then the king, here's how he responds. The king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. This is where the revival starts to happen. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and Levites and all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So he now, he's been affected from him, his reading and him hearing God's word. Now he goes up and says, I want the whole nation to hear this. The whole nation has to hear God's word. And he's prayed and he's asking for God to move. Okay, so all, everyone's hearing now the, the, the scriptures that they found. Verse 31, and the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And this is revival happening. He's making a covenant for all of the people. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join it. And the inhabitants, inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord, their God. All his days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And then if you look for two other verses in the next chapter, they have this massive Passover. Listen to how 
um, the, the narrator describes the Passover. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. This is back in David's time. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all of Judah, Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Jos- Josiah, the Passover was kept. So we see the spirit move, right? Like this is a country who wanted nothing to do with God. When they were outright rebelling, worshiping other idols and, and not wanting anything to do with God, so much so that God is going to, on the spot, punish them. But then Josiah is transformed by his reading and hearing of the word. So he's like, I'm gonna, I want the whole nation to, to experience the spirit of God in revival. So he reads this publicly and then the whole nation repents. It starts following God. It says that all, all his days, they did not turn away from following the Lord. They, that's the people, that's all of them, right? They did not turn away from following the Lord. And it says, I think he reigned 31 years, Josiah did. So this is a massive revival and awakening of God's people, okay? So that's the fifth step, right? So the fourth step is contending, intercessory prayer, asking God to move. And then the fifth step, again, it's not guaranteed. We're not, we can't make God um, perform a revival, right? We can't make an awakening happening. But if we're contending, if we're asking like the Bible tells us to, then possibly God will move. Possibly God will do things that are extraordinary in our own lives and in our church's life and the city at large. And the more extraordinary uh, that God works, the more he's going to get glory, right? Because we, the more extraordinary it is, we can't point back to ourselves and secretly kind of pat ourselves on the back because our church is so awesome, or um, I'm just so smart, or we do this or that as a church. No, the more extraordinary it is, the more we just have to say, I, I don't know. It's God. We just asked and God moved. Okay, so this is, this is what I want us to become as a church moving into the new year. And here's a, 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 a neat little kind of historical fact of the scriptures here. So after Josiah dies, Egypt takes over briefly. Then the Babylonians come in, which is basically the tool of God's wrath that he's going to pour out on Judah. So the Babylonians come in, they're mean, they're bad, they conquer Judah, push Egypt out, and eventually a guy named Nebuchadnezzar would take the throne. He's the king of Babylonia. And you've heard of Nebuchadnezzar because uh, mainly in the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel, uh, those of you know know that uh, book of the Bible, you have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel, where they were kids when Josiah was reigning as king. So they were the remnant, and, and they, they were, like, you read the book of Daniel, like, these, these, these young men are, like, sharp. Like, they are, they are, the, they are leaders, they are, they are disciplined, they follow the Lord, they don't listen to everyone else, but they actually were raised and came up in this revival under King Josiah. In this awakening, this was where Daniel, Meshach, and Abednego, Meshach, and Abednego came up, and they were raised. So even the remnant, even though Josiah left, they were judged, they were taken into exile, God's people were these, these, these young men and probably many, many others that we don't have stories about, they were the remnant of God's hope um, to uh, create a people for themselves. And we, in Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know for sure if he was converted, but he definitely became tolerant to God's people and gave them leniencies and allowed them their culture to flourish in captivity and in exile. And so even you seeing the next generation, the remnants of the revival and the awakening, which I think is a really cool thing that I, I hadn't really put together that, that, that Daniel and, and Chronicles here were connected so intimately. So what do we do with this, right? What do we do with this? Well, I think two simple, two simple application points, right? We pray. 
and we pray. We, we begin to hunger for God to move. And not just reactionary prayer. We need to do that, continue to, to pray for those things. But let's contend, let's pray, let's plead for God to move. First in your own life, right? It starts with like Josiah, like he was undone. Those first three steps, it's like that, that hit, hits close to home. And then that starts to spread out from Josiah. And that's how if you look the history of revivals and awakenings. That's how these things start. And what just dream of what it would be like for God to, to happen to use us just a tiny, tiny bit to see awakening and revival come to our church and to Norman and to Oklahoma. Um, and right now, you know, the, all the, the studies show that the news isn't great as far as how many people are leaving the church and the health of the church. And especially if you look at our nation um, in totality, like the, the news isn't great when it comes to more churches close every year than, than, than are planted every year. It seems like we're losing ground. And that may be the case, kind of depends on how those studies are actually done. But regardless, it seems like we're in this moment where just doing church a little bit better we're having a little bit better preaching, we're having our technology a little bit better, that's, that's just not enough, right? Like we need something more. We need God's spirit to move and to, for him to show us, hey, I've got this, I'm building my church. And I just, I want um, in my own life, I want that to happen. And I want so desperately in our church for that to happen and for Norman and in other churches in Norman as well. So let's pray your kingdom come, your will be done in our time, like right now, not Hey, maybe, or if, it, if it's, you know, if, it, if you're not busy, or hey, if you really, really love Norman, like that, that I, I have those caveats, I think, in my head when I pray that. But no, your kingdom come, your will be done right now in my heart, in my home, in my church, in my city. Like that's, I think that's the first step. And it's, that's a simple, straightforward thing. Second thing that I think is a practical step, um, this is what we do on elder-led prayer. We started this last year for this reason, right? A corporate time where we come together as a church, anybody can come and pray. And that's what we do during that time. Uh, we can pray for individual things and we do if that's, that's the need. But most of that time is contending. It's intercessory. It's asking God to move in our church and move in our city. So Wednesday night, 6.30, this, this coming Wednesday, um, that's a great application step. Come, come and pray together with other brothers and sisters in Christ and pray for um, the church and the city. That happens, like Jay said, every first Wednesday of every month moving forward, that'll happen. But it's happening this week. So um, that's, a, that's a practical application step. So you can do it on your own, obviously. And, we're try and that's a space we've created as a church. In your missional community, I would encourage you to um, make that a normal part when you do pray. Make contending an intercessory a part of that. Not just be reactionary, but be proactive with that, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us uh, two or three minutes, right? I want to practice this, right? Because I don't think this is, I don't think this is normal uh, for us. So we're going to practice this, okay? And, and so I'm going to give us just maybe three minutes where, um, of silence here. And what I want you to do is I, um, to yourself, I want you to try this, right? I want you to try praying that God would move. Could be in your own life, could be in your home, could be in the church, whatever it is, just pray. If you feel comfortable doing it to yourself, uh, to yourself quietly, that's great. But if you feel comfortable saying it out loud, do that as well, right? Like it's not just a quiet thing. If you want to say it out loud, you can say it out loud, but for sure, 
do it quietly and practice this, right? This is like training. We need to practice this um, or we'll never get better or more comfortable if we don't try it. It may feel awkward, but I'm only going to do it for about three minutes and then I'll close this and then we'll move into a time of communion. So go ahead and, and, and bow your head, eyes closed, and just contend and ask God to move in your own heart, in our church, and in the city. Father, we know you're honored when we act like little children and come to you. Tell us that in your word. And so I pray that you would help us have the attitude of little children in this area. Not spoiled brat children that are demanding that you do things for us for our benefit, but that we would be humble children who just think their daddy is awesome and can do awesome things, like create everything we see, like create life, like put the stars in place, like create the mountains and the oceans. And, and, and I pray that we're like little children who come to you who believe you're awesome and you're powerful and you can do anything. And we just want to, to be able to, to, to see that and be used by you to accomplish those things. Not so then we can get glory and, 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 and talk about how awesome our little kingdom is, but that we can point to you in your kingdom, in your glory, in your honor, and that you would be the hero, not us, but that you would be the hero. And I, I pray that you would help our hearts there, but I pray that we wouldn't shy away from asking big, bold prayers and having an expectation that you will move. And if you don't, then that's fine. You're sovereign and you can do what you want to do, but you call us to pray. You call us to trust. You call us to have confidence in you. So help us. Help us. Pray your spirit would help us be the kind of people that pray big prayers and expect you to move now, not, not in the future or not in, in some just random time, but, but now in the moment, in the present. Help us become people who pray in this way. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.